Now, when we hear the words new covenant, we may just think, oh yes, new covenant. Um, new Testament's another way of saying the same thing. But, but we never lived under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So when we hear those words, they, they may not be as freighted with significance as they were for the apostles who first heard them. But that phrase, new covenant, is describing something that, that is not just chronologically new, but is qualitatively new and different. A, a major advance in God's program of redemption for sinful humans. And so it's worth exploring what's new about the new covenant. So I invite your attention back to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah was a prophet uh, speaking to the people of, of Judah, especially, in the sixth century BC at the time of the Babylonian exile. The northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive by Assyria quite a while before that. But early in the 6th century BC, Babylon, the reigning power, overtook Judah and took them captive. Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord to the people, to God's old covenant people, during that painful reality of the captivity. And through him, God promised something better that was to come. There was a promise of, of restoring Israel and Judah ultimately, as, as a united people and, and material blessing upon them. But all of that was grounded in ultimately the reality of a new covenant. So hear these words. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah, spokesman for the Lord, says, the old covenant, in a sense, hasn't worked. Not because what God revealed in the law was in any way inferior or negative. The problem lay with the people. And so, looking back to the Mosaic covenant, 
the covenant that God made with the people of Israel when he took them out of Egypt. He says, I, they broke my covenant. I was faithful to them. The, the relationship between God and Israel is, is described in marital terms. I was a faithful husband to them, but they broke my covenant. And so that's why infidelity on the part of the Lord's people is often described as prostitution. And so he says, I'm going to make a new covenant, and here's the promise. I will, he says in verse 33, I, I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. In other words, in the new covenant, the covenant people will have not only the law, God's, God's statement of his promise and command, but it will be internalized in some way. It won't just be out there commanding them, it will be in here compelling them to obey a, a new kind of spiritual nobility. And then in verse 34, a, a, a new kind of universal access to God among the covenant people. No longer, he says, will, will you have to, some of you have to teach others saying, know the Lord, because all of the covenant people will know the Lord. Ancient Israel was a mixed community. Physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some believing, some not. But in the new covenant, all of those who are the covenant people will be believers. They will know the Lord. That, by the way, as an aside, is one of the major reasons why um, in our part of the Christian tradition, we, we, don't, we don't baptize the infant children of believing parents in the same way that Israelite boys were all circumcised on the eighth day because the, the, the sign of entrance to the covenant people is a sign of entrance to the community of the believing. And then he says at the end of verse 34, I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. A kind of full and final forgiveness going beyond what the people of Israel experienced with, with the ongoing offering of sacrifices and the annual Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the sins will be gone in some way. Now, you understand, I hope, that when God says, I will remember their sins no more, we have a figure of speech. God is not saying, I, I will literally forget what they have done. Otherwise, he could not very well bring every work into judgment at the end, as he has said. It's a figure of speech. It's a way of saying, I, I will not act toward them on the basis of their sins anymore. I will not treat them as guilty of those sins. There will be a full forgiveness. Now, also at the time of the exile, the other big name was Ezekiel, a prophet 
sent by God to speak to the people of Judah. And, and Ezekiel amplifies what God spoke through Jeremiah a bit. At, at Ezekiel 34, 25, he doesn't use the word new, but he looks ahead and says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. So it's obviously going to be something new because it hasn't come yet. But it's called a covenant of peace. And then in chapter 36, at, at verse 25, he, he expands on that and says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Similar to Jeremiah's language, I will, I will write the law on your minds, on your hearts. And then verse 27, the way all that happens, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So this new heart that's a part of the new covenant comes about by a, a new kind of powerful indwelling of God's own spirit. And so that's what the prophets anticipate. Days are coming when that's going to happen. So when Jesus was eating that final Passover meal with the apostles, and, and he said, as, as Luke records it in, in Luke 2.20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. All of that was very rich with meaning for those men to whom our Lord was speaking. The new covenant. The time has come for God to do this new thing, to bring his, his covenant people to a new level of relationship with him, to a new level of spiritual life. Matthew and Mark, in their gospel accounts of, of this final Passover meal, don't use the, the adjective new, but, but they do remind us that Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, and then they add, for the forgiveness of sins. So as Jesus is eating this meal and preparing the apostles for what's going to happen the next day, when he, when he contemplates the, the offering of his own perfect life in a violent death, shedding his blood, he indicates the point of all that. The point of all that is for the forgiveness of human sins. In other words, when God institutes the new covenant, it's, it's not just the case of God saying, Okay, we'll do it a new way. It's a case of, of dealing with the root problem, namely our sins. That's the fundamental human problem, sin and guilt. And so that's what Jesus' atoning work that he's about to perform is fundamentally about. 
Now, there, there are other ways of describing effects of sin, but at the heart of it all is guilt and the need for forgiveness. And so we have the new covenant anticipated by the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We have, we have the new covenant instituted by the work of the Lord Jesus. As, as he explained at, at that meal with the apostles when he was saying, this, this is about to happen. The time of the new covenant has come and it's going to be inaugurated by my atoning death to deal with your sins. And so later in the New Testament writings, we find all of this explained in greater detail. Nowhere in, 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 in such great detail as in the epistle to the Hebrews, where basically chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all developing this theme. The theme that, that we have now entered into the experience of the new covenant. The old was only a shadow of the reality that was to come, but the reality has arrived with the Messiah and his atoning death. And he has brought us into the new covenant. Now, remember, when, when God spoke through Jeremiah, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, with the Jewish people. I don't know about you, but I'm a Gentile. So what we have, when Jesus is gathered there at that meal with the apostles, is, is in a sense the, the nucleus of the believing remnant of Israel that would, that would be the beginning of the new covenant people. But the new covenant was extended beyond the bounds of the people to whom it was originally promised. And we Gentiles were grafted in. We were made a part of the covenant people by faith. Even as God had anticipated and planned all along, but now it all becomes clear. So in Hebrews, um, especially here in chapters 9 and 10, we find the writer emphasizing, first of all, that we have in the new covenant, through the atoning work of Christ, that we remember in the Lord's Supper, we have a, a, a new final forgiveness. He makes the point in, in chapter 9, verse 15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And then over at 9.25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then over in chapter 10, verse 11 down through verse 18, he amplifies it even further, emphasizes in verse 14, by one sacrifice, 
He is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. And then notice, he, he refers us back to God's promise through Jeremiah. He quotes from Jeremiah 31. And that includes that climactic statement, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. It's done. Dealt with. He says that the Jewish priests who were still functioning under the old covenant were still offering their sacrifices in the first century until Rome destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. And, and he makes the point, if those sacrifices could finally deal with sin, then they wouldn't have to go on being offered. What they really provide is kind of an annual reminder of sins and the need for forgiveness. The, the difference between that kind of old covenant person of faith experience and the new covenant, it might be something like the difference between being a foster child and being an adopted child. Your foster child, you're, you're cared for, you're part of the family, you, you have every reason to believe you're going to be cared for tomorrow. But if you're adopted, you have, a, you have a new kind of finality of status. And that's what we have if we trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And then we also have this this new level of universal access to God among the covenant people. Promised in Jeremiah. And then in Hebrews 10, right after emphasizing our sin has been dealt with finally, perfectly, in the atoning work of Christ, once for all. He says, verse 19, Therefore we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. We have a great priest over the house of God. We sang that wonderful song about that reality. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We have this unhindered, open access to the perfectly holy God who is the creator and sustainer of all and the, and the judge of all. And we have this unhindered access because the sin that has separated us has been dealt with finally, perfectly, with eternal effect in the work of Jesus our Lord. It, it's easy to forget how, how awesome that is to have access to the God of the universe, unhindered. We can approach him with full confidence. I, I don't know about you, uh, a few times in my life, I, I mean, I've had the chance to actually have access to uh, powerful people, a few, and, and some really well-known people. For, for three years, um, Richard Christie was the, the mayor of Kitchener, 
And, and Richard and, and his wife were members of our small group in our church. So every Wednesday night, under normal circumstances, my wife and I were in the same small group with Richard and Edith and others. So I, I got to admit, there were a few times when I was in conversation with neighbors when I said something like, well, I was talking to, to the mayor the other night. And then I thought, I really shouldn't do that kind of thing. I, I shouldn't. I, I mean, so what? So the mayor's part of my life group. But, or there have been times, you know, when I might, I might say, um, I, you know, I was having a chat with John Piper one day. Well, I was. I mean, John Piper was in Cambridge to give our annual heritage preaching lectures in 1997. I still remember chatting with John. Now, at that time, uh, John wasn't quite as well known as he is now. He was becoming really, really well known. But, you know, let's face it, it's kind of fun to be able to drop a name and say, yeah, I was chatting with John Piper, or Don Carson and I were having a talk the other day. Uh, some of you don't know who they are, but others of you are now suitably impressed, right? Um, but I, I got to stop it, because Bill Graham told me to stop name dropping. Just kidding. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a thrill to have access to somebody who's powerful and important. We have unhindered access to God as the new covenant people. And beyond that, we have, we have this new power to obey. Because God has poured out, according to his promise, the Holy Spirit to indwell all of us, to empower us, make us new people. Jeremiah promised, in, in the words of the Lord, I'll, I'll write my law in their hearts. And Ezekiel explained that a bit by, by having the Lord say, I will put my spirit in you. And in the new covenant, that's exactly what God has done. Occasionally in, in my life, I've heard well-intentioned Christians say something like, well, you know, the only difference between believers and, and unbelievers is that we're forgiven. Now, that's said with the intent of humility and not being self-righteous. The thing is, it's not true. Being forgiven is not the only difference between the people of God and the unbelieving world. We who belong to Christ by faith are forgiven, and we are indwelt and empowered and in process of being transformed by God's Spirit. Paul works this out in detail in, in the Epistle of the Romans, chapter 6 through chapter 8. And, and so in chapter 6, he makes the point you, you've died to the old self. You are not the person you once were if you have been joined to Christ. Early in chapter 7, he, 
he explicitly makes the point that change has come about by the, by the gift of the Spirit. And in chapter 8, he works it out in, in much greater detail. That we are being led by the Spirit of God into a new kind of life. Some of you uh, may at times in the past have, have watched that uh, TV program called The Hour of Power with Robert Schuller from the Crystal Cathedral. That's years gone by. Robert Schuller was, was fond of saying things like, keep on possibilitizing. It's all about possibility thinking. His kind of possibility thinking left a lot to be desired, actually. But there is a genuine kind of possibility thinking. Because if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, and you're part of the new covenant people, and you're a new person, and dwelt by God's Spirit. And so, if, if I profess faith in Christ, I cannot say, I cannot excuse my sin by saying, hey, I'm human, that's just the way it is. Because I am not the person I once was. I'm a new person in the new covenant. And so you see, if, if we understand what, what now has become reality through the work of Christ in the new covenant, if, if we understand it, then, then we experience the joy of being forgiven fully, finally, declared fully righteous and accepted and innocent now in advance of the final judgment. We experience the thrill of an open, unhindered access to our holy God. And we experience confidence that we, we have a new ability to say no to what is evil and yes to what is right and pleases God. There's a whole lot that's new and a whole lot that's really wonderful about the new covenant. Sometimes uh, we preachers, as we're thinking about what needs to be said to God's people, have to think hard about, all right, what, what am I going to ask the people to do now in response to what we've heard? In this case, I don't really need to ask you to do much of anything. Now, if you've never yet believed in Christ, become one of his, then you need to believe in him. Repent of your sins and believe in him and commit to him as your Savior and Lord. But if you are a believer in Christ, what you need to do is frankly simply rejoice that God has made you a part of his new covenant people. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you keep all your promises. What you promised through the prophets, you inaugurated in the work of Jesus, our Lord, and we experience now 
by faith in him. Lord, this is wonderful good news. Bring us all today to believe it, to trust in Jesus, who is the content of that good news, to live faithfully as his disciples and to make him known. In his name we ask, amen.